Hey guys, I'm lead pastor Noel Peepgrass, and I just wanted to welcome you to the Exeter Valley Church podcast. Our church plant started in 2021 with the goal of seeing God's kingdom extended in our hometown. If you're curious about Jesus, looking for a church family to be a part of, or feel called to join a kingdom expansion in Exeter, California, we'd love to have you join us on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. in our historic building at 218 West Pine Street. For more information, head on over to www.exetervalleychurch.com or visit our Instagram page. Thanks for listening. So what do you think the world's biggest criticism of Christians is? Do you remember? I think I said this like a couple of months ago. That what is the world's biggest claim against the church? Hypocrites, right? This is like the, the world's biggest criticism of the church. And um, I think I think the reason why could be because the church is so passive towards sin, especially inside our own ranks, right? Why does the world think that we're hypocrites? Because there's Christians that they know that continue to live in sin that aren't living any differently than themselves. And so they think to themselves, well, John over here says that he's a Christian, but he does all the same things that I do. And and that sometimes can be allowed to fester in our churches because we can be a little bit passive towards sin. Well, anyways, uh, passivity towards sin, hypocrisy, I think both, both of these things are addressed in today's uh, passage. <clears throat> I have another question for you today. Have you ever been, and you could actually raise your hand if you want to, have you ever been in a church where uh, church discipline was uh, enacted? Anyone ever been in a church where church discipline was enacted? Okay, so some of you are shaking your your, your heads. So that's cool because you've given me new hope. I honestly, I don't think I've ever been in a church setting where church discipline was enacted. Like what we're reading here, I've never seen it come to the point of this person being brought before um, the church. And so I I don't know. Some of you, though, probably come from like uh, examples where you've had a negative experience with that, where maybe there's been church discipline exacted or enacted, I should say. Um, and it hasn't been good, you know, maybe it's felt abusive or wrong, or maybe it's felt like people have been mistreated. Maybe you've been the one that was mistreated in one of these examples. So we kind of, we have like these abusive, this like abusive side of the coin. And then we have this totally passive side of the coin. Like where in my example, I've been in the church since for 40 years, 42 years, almost, you know, 42 and a half. Right. And I've never seen a situation where church discipline has been used. So on one hand, we have abuse of church discipline. And then on the other hand, I think we have a passivity towards sin and an unwillingness um, to confront. And it, it brings up the question, like, what do we do with sin in our family? Like in this family, what do we do with sin? Um, now, some translations actually read, maybe your translations, uh, or your translation reads, if your brother or sister sins against you. Does anyone have a translation that reads that way this morning? The NIV, the modern version of the NIV just says, if your brother or sister sins, you may have a translation that says, if your brother or sister sins against you. Um, our earliest and our best manuscripts seem not to use those additional uh, two words. So we're going to avoid them uh, as well this morning. Um, but I, I just want to say, you know, it's easy to see how those two additional words could be pertinent to the verse. You know, what do you do if someone sins against you? And, um, I just, I, I wanted to, um, to just say that um, I think that this verse is is intended to be useful um, for us. 
Um, because um, sin has a target, doesn't it? Sin always has a target. Sometimes sin comes to target our relationship to God vertically. And sometimes sin comes to target our relationship horizontally to one another. But sin always has a target. So whether your translation says sins against you or not, I think it's true that sin always has a target. Uh, I, I then also just wanted to say that, man, this has been one of the hardest weeks of prep that I've had since I've been preaching. Um, and uh, I like the passage is not terribly hard to understand. So I was wondering, like, why this is so hard? Well, I just felt like mental block after mental block, just like having a really hard time. And I just I think just I felt like a sense of opposition, like something was trying to get in the way of this passage being taught in our congregation um, this morning. You know, uh, I just felt like just blocked. And um, I, I think there's maybe a reason why I think it's because that actually doing this this passage is hard. Like, it's not hard to understand this passage, but it's really hard to do this passage, at least correctly all the way through. And, um, and I think the other thing is that, uh, this passage, like this teaching on how to confront in the congregation of faith, how to address sin within our walls, it's needed desperately, like desperately needed. And, uh, sometimes I don't know if you can relate to this, but sometimes I think when, when you experience opposition that feels like spiritual in nature, it's because what you're about to do or what you're trying to do is really important for kingdom advancement. You know what I'm saying? Like Satan wouldn't mind, you know, if we were just doing something like haphazard. But when we're coming to something that potentially could be really important, he's after us. And I've just felt that. And so that's one of the reasons that I prayed to start my sermon this morning. Um, I also just want to say I really appreciated some of the prayers for me earlier. Um, you guys are really good to me. And uh, I appreciate you a lot. I spent a lot of time this week thinking about how much I appreciate the people that are here with us. Um, and it's just amazing um, to see the way people are stepping up and stepping in here. And uh, Megan and I love you guys. We, like, yeah, we love you lots. So anyway, I think the other reason um, this topic is difficult or was difficult for me this week is because I'm not good at it. I think I, I was thinking of times where I haven't done it quite this way. I was thinking of ways where I don't like confronting, where I prefer to keep the peace or not say the hard things. I don't know that I've ever felt like it was easy to say the hard things, you know, that maybe that's just my personality. Some of you maybe are, are better at, at those confrontational words, but I just think this is hard for me personally. And uh, to be honest, you know, church discipline, the idea of church discipline just feels like a swear word. Feels like I hope we never have to do that, you know. Um, and uh, you know, I, I'm probably just like you. Like I've seen the good and the bad with this uh, with this confrontation as well. I can think of a moment in high school where a youth leader um, found out I was doing some things that I should not have been doing, and he pulled me aside privately, and he confronted me. He's like, "I've I've heard this. Is this true?" And what was so cool about that then is then it gave me an opportunity. I had to choose either to lie, right, to confess, to repent, and then do I continue to do what I was doing or do I like truly repent, right, and turn away? And, uh, you know, he was so faithful not to just confront me, but to walk me out of that sin, 
And uh, it's such a blessing. Like so much of the time we, we, we do long for things to be taken immediately. But man, he was so faithful to walk me through. He didn't just confront me. He walked me through restoration. And it took, it took honestly months and years. There's still a way in which I'm being restored in that. But he, he walked me through it. So powerful. So that's like the good example. And then, man, I've had another example where someone, you know, kind of came at me and, and it felt like an attack. It, it didn't feel like I had clearly sinned against them. It felt like the person went to other people first, not to me first. Um, threw stones, said mean things, kind of went below the belt. I've had the good and the bad. I, I would assume that in a room this size, you guys have experienced the good and the bad of confrontation in the congregation. But here's the deal. Like I said, I think this passage is for us today. And uh, I, I, I'm not even completely sure why I gave some reasons why maybe I think this passage is, is um, for us today, but maybe it's because it's a weak spot for us. Would you consider that maybe this is a weak spot for us? Like, what if God is trying to highlight something through his word um, that's that's a, a weak spot for us or a blind spot for us? Maybe we're too nice. I don't know. Maybe we're too nice. We're overly gracious. We're, we're willing to forgive, but we're not willing to confront. We're passive or passive aggressive. Maybe it's because so many of us have been hurt in other congregations. And I, I know that that's true. I, I've had conversations with you guys. I know that a lot of us are swimming with some sort of church hurt. And maybe, maybe that church hurt is because of discipline or because of lack of discipline. Either way, we can be hurt. And maybe there's like a, maybe there's a trial coming. I thought to myself this morning, well, what if there's a trial that God is like trying to prepare us for? Something that's to come that we need to like have foundation rooted in, um, in order to walk out precisely. I don't know, but somehow this feels really important. Have I got your attention? Hopefully you're thinking like, Hey, this hard five, like, really like not, not exciting verses in Matthew are really important for us this morning. So I wanted to uh, move on um, and, and uh, begin by uh, just getting you caught up with where we're at in the book of Matthew, right? So we're in Matthew chapter 18 and Matthew chapter 18 is known as the Sermon on the Congregation. So it's one of Jesus's longer narratives in the book of Matthew. So this is for us as a body of believers. Jesus has started to form and define the church as he intends it, right? It started with Peter's confession, Jesus, you're the Christ. And Jesus said, upon that confession, Peter, I will build my church. And so since that moment in what, well, that was Matthew chapter 16, Jesus has been building his church. So we're, we're in the sermon on the congregation. We just, um, we just left off verses six, seven, eight, and nine. Um, Jesus taught, I'm sorry, this was two weeks ago. Jesus taught his disciples to um, discipline themselves first, right? Remember the stumbling block passage? If you're uh, committing an act of sin, if you're living in sin, you could be a stumbling block to others. So what do you need to do? You need to cut off whatever causes you to sin. If it's your eye, gouge it out, right? The idea being that sin is dangerous and you should take extreme measures to remove it. So he, he already taught his disciples to discipline themselves. And isn't it pertinent that he's now going to teach his disciples how to discipline others? I think that we should pay attention um, to the the order of things here. And so um, the other thing that I wanted to just highlight about this passage as we step into it, I think there's, there's three things that this passage um, teaches us. Number one is a posture, a way of positioning ourselves as we handle confrontation 
in our congregation. It's a posture of respect. We're going to see a posture of respect. The second thing is the purpose of our confrontation. The purpose of our confrontation is not to hammer somebody, right? Remember last week, God's not a cosmic cop. He's actually a father welcoming the lost back into the family. So the purpose of our confrontation is not to hammer people. It's not to bludgeon people. The purpose is restoration. The purpose is reconciliation. And then lastly, uh, he's got a plan for us. There's really like step one, step two, step three. If you're a linear thinker, type A personality, you're going to love this passage. It gives great uh, instructions to follow. First, you start with a private confrontation. If that doesn't work, you bring two or three witnesses. If that doesn't work, now you bring this person to the whole church. So these are all, uh, these things are all important. They've all got to be enacted if we're going to produce a confrontation that's useful to the con- congregation. So posture of respect, purpose of restoration, and a plan. So I'm going to walk through this verse by verse and hopefully get us to a point of clarity as we investigate what Jesus is uh, getting at. Um, so let's take it from the top with verse 15. And again, you're welcome and encouraged to have your Bibles open, even if your Bible is on your phone. Uh, I want you to be following along with your Bibles. Um, and even if you want to take notes, if you're that kind of person, by all means, go for it. So verse 15 starts us off. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. And I think this, yeah, Oscar. By the way, Oscar's killing it back on the slides today. Nan got him all trained up this morning. Thanks, Oscar. Appreciate it, man. Um, but the, yeah, so the, the, the first thing that we're taught to do in this passage is to go and point out their fault. Anybody, uh, familiar with the Enneagram in here? Do we have any Enneagram people? Any Enneagram nines here? Nines? No nines in this whole church. Lord save us. Okay. Mark, thank you. Mark the alley. Great. Those are the people that will be nice to me when stuff hits the fan around here. Enneagram nines are peacekeepers, right? Their primary motivation is to keep the peace. At least so I'm told. I'm not trying to label you two. Thanks for raising your hands. But for an Enneagram nine, this first, uh, this first command is kind of hard. It means that we have to take the initiative. He says, go and point out their fault. And notice we have to do this, um, like this is if someone sinned against us or we see somebody sinning. We know from Matthew 7 that if we've sinned, there's another command to go, right? If we've sinned, we go and be reconciled to our brother. That was like two years ago, it feels like, uh, that we learned that Matthew 7. It was only a year ago, but I guess it's felt like two years. But but here we're supposed to go if we see someone, a brother or sister, um, in sin. And I think that this is just like, it's like a really interesting that it needs to be commanded, you know? But it, the reality is that, and maybe you would disagree with me, I think that Christians are probably the least confrontational people in the world. Christians tend to be peacemakers, right? We tend to avoid confrontation. And, uh, you know, I coached for years at Central Valley Christian High School uh, with other guys who were Christian coaches. And then I came and I started coaching here in Exeter at a public school with football coaches that were not, maybe were, or maybe were not, um, Christians. And I can tell you that, uh, there was a whole different way of relating to one another. And, um, you know, one of the things that I noticed was that there was, there was almost like a little bit of like, oh, well, this is nice. So-and-so can say exactly what they think in whatever words they're choosing to use. And we all just kind of like move on next day. We're friends. You know, maybe there's an argument or whatever. 
But in Christian circles, I mean, shake your head if you know what I'm talking about. Sometimes in Christian circles, we're just so afraid to confront things that are coming up. Anyways, I, I guess maybe we could improve on that. You know, we're not, um, we're not aggressive by nature, I think, at times. Many of us Christians, like, like me, I grew up in a pacifist church. So, good Lord Almighty, we weren't going to confront anybody. Maybe that's why I've never seen a case of church discipline, you know? We're not necessarily aggressive, but nor are we passive, are we? Christians are incredibly passive-aggressive at times. And I hate to say that, and maybe I'm, I'm painting with too broad of a brush. And if I am, forgive me. But that's been my experience, that sometimes we as Christians, yeah, we're not aggressive, but in the name of being not aggressive, we're passive. But we don't really let go of things. We hold on to them, and we're passive-aggressive. That's not what Jesus taught. Jesus says, go and point out their fault when you see a brother or sister in sin. And, you know, I, I don't know who needs to hear this this morning. But Jesus not only allows confrontation, he commands it. He says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. Now, a few caveats, because how we do this is going to be important. You could probably imagine. And I think that's why we've thrown out the baby with the bathwater, potentially. It's so hard to confront somebody well. It often doesn't end up the way that you want it to. And so we've just maybe thrown the baby uh, out with the bathwater. So a few caveats. Uh, first of all, the passage starts with, if your brother or sister sins. Okay. So we're only commanded to confront a brother or sister. Did you notice that? This passage is not teaching us to go out into the streets and start calling everybody on their sin. Not that we should be completely uh, like tolerant or permissive of the sin in our world, but this passage is specifically talking to how we handle a brother or sister in the Lord. That's something we've got to notice. And notice the familial language. Like I, we say this around here, don't we? Like we're a family on mission with God. This is one of the primary ways that we um, like identify ourselves. We're a family. And the language here is familial. He says, if your brother or sister sins, and uh, there's no command uh, to going around and correcting the moral behavior of people outside the church. So this is for us. It's like inside these walls that we're noticing sin and confronting it when we see it. Uh, the Apostle Paul actually said something about it. I think what he says is really helpful. So 1 Corinthians 5, 12 and 13, he says, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? So Paul said that. Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. But how, how often are we as a church more concerned about what's happening out there than we are what's happening in here? Jesus says, if your brother or sister is sinning, you go and you point out their fault. It's our duty to correct. And this is for the sake of the brother or sister, right? Like the good example that I gave you by being confronted this uh, mentor of mine was able to walk me through restoration and healing and a new way of being. That's a real gift, isn't it? Imagine if he'd not, I, I sometimes wonder, what if he hadn't done that? What if he'd been too passive to do that? My, my life might look a lot different, like honestly, you know? So it's really kind for the brother or sister to be corrected. It's also kind for the church. What happens in the church, in this community, in this family, if sin is left unchecked? 
what do they say? One bad apple makes the whole bunch rotten. That can happen inside a community. So correction is good for the family. And then, of course, correction is good for the world. What was the world's number one criticism of the church? Christians who don't act like Christians. Hypocrites. So what happens if we actually correct the problems that are inside here? What if we actually bring each other back to uh, restoration, reconciliation? Now the church uh, has a different image in the streets, doesn't it? And this is actually really good for the world because now the world is attracted to the salt and the light that are actually here. Now the world's not seeing just a hypocritical church. The world's seeing the true church, a healthy church. So we're only commanded to confront a brother or sister. This is about what goes on inside these walls. Then the second caveat here is that only clear sin is to be corrected. Now, I don't know if you've ever had this experience in your families, but sometimes one of our child will say to the other, oh, you're so annoying. And I, I learned in counseling that, that no one annoys you except who you allow to annoy you. So we tell our kids, they're not annoying. You're just annoyed, right? The fact of the matter is sometimes we get hurt over actions of others. We take offense to the actions of others, even though they're not directly sinful. Do you know what I'm saying? Like sometimes we can be offended with a brother or sister, even when they haven't sinned with us, really. Maybe it's a gray area. Maybe there was a misunderstanding. This passage is about what's clearly sin. So think like Ten Commandments. Think Sermon on the Mount, teachings of Jesus. This passage speaks specifically to when you've been sinned against or when a brother or sister is in sin. This isn't about the color of their shoes or style of clothes. You get what I'm saying, right? I just made it really silly, but this is about clear sin that Jesus is addressing. So then how do we need to do it? How do we confront a brother or a sister? We know now that we're commanded to confront, but that's not all. So the second part of verse 15 has our answer. So it says 15, second, second half of 15, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. So first thing, how do we do it? We do it privately. Just between the two of you, Jesus says. And I will tell you, the temptation is always to talk to other people first. The temptation is always to grab your two or three witnesses before you've gone to the brother. I can tell you, like, guaranteed, this is the way that I am tempted to do this almost every single time. Because I want to have backup with me. I'm scared. Or maybe I just want to make sure, are you seeing the same things I'm seeing? But Jesus didn't teach us to do it that way. He says, you go privately first. Maybe, you know, and this is really protective, I think. Like, maybe it's that we've misjudged, right? So think about what's fair for the person that we're coming to in this situation. And again, if any of you have ever been in a situation where you felt like, you know, at the hands of the church, you were just like, you weren't treated fairly. I know that there's that swimming around in this room. So we need to be fair to people. So we go to them privately first. We don't expose them publicly right off the bat. Like, believe it or not, sometimes this happens. Like immediately you get exposed in front of the whole congregation. This is not what Jesus taught. The second thing that's so great about going to somebody privately is it completely eliminates gossip. Gossip is perhaps the, the hidden sin of the church or the excused sin in the church. And gossip too is prohibited by Jesus' command here. The offender should be spoken to. The offender should not be spoken about. The offender should have a chance 
to hear the complaint one-on-one in a private situation. And this is friendship, right? Notice this. The primary step or the first step of confrontation in the congregation is just an act of friendship. Hey, I've noticed this. Or, hey, I heard that you were involved in this. What's going on there? See how there's not like, I, I'm, I have made the mistake of starting with accusation. Hey, you're drinking too much. Hey, you should not work so much. Hey, you know, it seems like you care more about baseball than you do about your faith. You know what I'm saying? Like starting with accusation. That's not how Jesus teaches it. Privately, one-on-one, we start. Gossip is prohibited. It's friendship. It's not an attack. The second thing we notice is that this needs to be done gently. Confrontation needs to be done gently. We could pro- probably all agree that that should be the case. The Apostle Paul wrote about this in Galatians 6.1. He said, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. It's a very other-centered approach. Again, this is an attack. We're not hammering somebody over the head. You know, it's like how we do it is just as important as that we do it. How we do it is just as important as that we do it. I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna quote my homeboy, uh, Frederick Dale Bruner. I'm gonna start calling him Freddie B. Is that okay with everybody? Freddie B. He's the one that wrote that big thick book I had with me last week. He says uh, that as we know, some confrontation is more sinful than the sin it confronts. Some confrontation is more sinful than the sin it confronts. So how we do this is really important. We've got to do it privately first. We've got to do it gently. And yet, yeah, there's still a responsibility to restore. And let's remember, the restoration is the whole point. Confrontation is for the sake of restoration. It's not to bust somebody and move on quickly to disassociation. As a sixth grade teacher, I feel like an expert on how uh, people are wired to disassociate themselves. It drives me crazy, but kids are so fast to be like, I can't be with that person. You got to put me with somebody else. I can't be with that person. Just cancel them right away. This isn't a woke thing. This is like a human nature thing. Just cancel each other. We move straight to disassociation, but not in the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is always for the sake of restoration. But it's not Christian to allow a brother or sister to continue in their sin. So in our gentleness, we can't forget that it's not very gentle to allow someone to walk down the path of destruction. Now, I like I'm not I'm not psychic or anything, but I I was thinking it, so I was wondering maybe some of you might be thinking it. It's like, oh like Noel, like what about being judgy? Right? Anyone not confronted because they didn't want to be judgy? They didn't want to be judgmental, overly harsh. You know, Pastor Noel, the Bible says, judge not lest you be judged. You'll be judged by the same measure that you use. That's my, like, that's a real motivation for me. Well, if I'm, if I judge this person's behavior, then they'll be harsh on me. And I don't know if I want them to be very harsh on me. Anyone, uh, maybe can relate, uh, with that. <laughs> Matthew 7 says, uh, don't judge. If you, if you remember, I found this is kind of weird, but one of the most quoted, quoted things I've ever said from the pulpit is, um, don't judge, but judge a little. I don't know if anyone can remember that. Okay. Maybe not. There's like two people that remember that quote, I guess. They both mentioned it to me. Anyway, this passage teaches us, uh, when it's right to judge a brother or sister. Like there is a judging that's necessary. There's a discernment that's necessary. 
we have to judge a little. Matthew 7, 1 actually says, do not judge or you too will be judged, right? The thing you have to do first in Jesus' teaching on Matthew 7 is first remove the plank in your own eye. Self-discipline before we discipline others. And it says, then you will see more clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. When we discipline ourselves first, now we're actually able to see rightly and to judge the actions of a, um, a fellow believer. So we have to be just a little bit judgy. But when we confront like Jesus, it's almost like uh, the innocent until proven guilty uh, mandate, you know? Like this is how we ought to think about our judgment towards somebody and their actions. We're not coming to them already with the hammer. We're coming to them in love with a heart for restoration. And we're treating them like a real person. We're like caring for them. Again, this is an act of friendship before it's an act of judgment. First, they're given a chance to come clean in private. No one else would even have to know about this. It's actually kind of beautiful if you think about it. I'm like, man, why does this passage feel so hard? It's actually like, it's really beautiful. First, you go privately. You go gently to this person. You treat them like a real person. You don't come and accuse them. You're judging, but just a little, not overly. It's not like you've already come up with the verdict. It gives them a chance to come clean, to repent. The really unliving thing to do would just be to drop them, like I said earlier, just to disassociate. In all the cases that I've heard about church discipline gone wrong, what's happened is someone has been stood up and and disassociated with before they've even had a chance to like, there's been no judge or jury. There's only been like condemnation. This is not what Jesus is teaching. We treat people uh, fairly because confrontation is loving. We just have to change our mind about it. You know what I'm saying? Like we have to change our mind about confrontation. It's like a mental shift that needs to take place because somewhere in our minds, we've told ourselves that confrontation is scary. Confrontation is bad. It's going to break relationship. And Jesus says, no, this is how you keep relationship. It's loving to confront your brother uh, or sister. The desire is to bring them back into the fold. Remember, this story comes right on the heels of the lost sheep story. The father's love is for everyone to be brought back into the fold. Well, maybe this is one of the ways that we bring people back into the fold. We could also talk about the judgment like the last judgment. Some of you have been here long enough to remember Matthew 13. We had Glenn, the real studious guy. He was teaching about the wheat and the weeds. And he told us that in the parable um, of the weeds and the, and the wheat, that uh, Jesus says that we shouldn't pull the weeds lest we pull the wheat. You could go back and cross-reference that passage uh, if you want to on your own. I'm not going to get into depth. But in that passage, Jesus seemed to be saying, hey, just let it all grow. Because if you pull out the weeds too early, you'll pull up the good stuff with them. And Jesus' teaching in that passage was, let God be God. Let God perform the final judgment. And trust me, Jesus said, the final judgment's coming. But let's leave that up to God. But here it seems like we're told to do a little bit of judging. So how about this? How about if we let God do the final judging and we do just a little judging, a little bit of discernment that we need to restore a brother or sister? Again, Freddie B says it this way. The church should be tolerant, but not indifferent, patient, but not passive, believing in the last judgment, but also making preliminary judgments where sin and scandal require. Look, if we're honest, we probably err on the side of being undisciplined churches as often or more than we err on the side of being intolerant churches. 
in my experience, the church has been more undisciplined than intolerant. We've got to take this seriously. The hope starts to come in uh, at the end of verse 15. You're like, you're only through one verse. No, what is going on? If they listen to you, you've won them over is what it says. This is the hope that we have. If they listen to you and respond, you've won them over. Look, uh, and I love the language here. We've won them over. Like winning, I know that winning is the opposite of, of, uh, losing, right? In a way, winning is the opposite of lostness. When you want, if you've won someone over, they're no longer lost, right? This is a good thing. And how do we do that? Like winning somebody over, you know? Like I think of winning somebody over like my dog by giving them treats. It's very loving when you, when you win your, uh, your pet over. You get what I'm saying? We don't shame someone who's sin. We win them back in love. You do good in order to bring them back. You see what I'm saying? The more I yell and scream at my dog, the more my dog runs away. Have you, anyone else have a dog like that? The dog comes when it's like, oh, treats. Come here, buddy. Whatever. That was kind of embarrassing. Just, I just gave the whole congregation kiss lips. <clears throat> and the internet also has fish lips. We, we can cut it out. Yeah, there's Jeremy's talented, man. The whole point is that our, our posture is restorative. It's restoration we're after, not condemnation. Remember, it's God's kindness that draws us to repentance. It's not his meanness. It's not his harshness. It's his kindness that draws us to repentance. So this is the posture that we can have. But what if that doesn't work? What if you've done it one-on-one? You've tried to be gentle. You've tried to win them over. What if that doesn't work? What if the brother or sister doesn't repent? Do you wash your hands and leave them, continuing to allow them to uh, do their thing? Do you say to yourself, oh, I've forgiven them in my heart. And now whatever happens, happens. I've done my part. No, that is not what Jesus teaches next. He says next, the second part of the process is that if they will not listen, you take one or two others along with you so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So the second thing here, we got to grab some witnesses. If the private conversation doesn't work, the next step is a little small group. So um, check this out. This, this teaching is actually based in the Old Testament. If you look closely at your Bibles, that part that says every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses is inside its own little quotations. So this teaching is based on an Old Testament standard from Deuteronomy 19.15, which says one witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So Jesus loved the Old Testament. He's just walking right in and saying, remember how we uh, set it up back there in time of Moses? If you want to convict anybody of anything, you've got to have one or two witnesses in addition to yourself. So we're sticking with that. You've got to bring one or two witnesses. That makes two to three witnesses total. This is like the standard of proof, evidently, in the Judaic legal system. Two or three witnesses. Evidently, confronting a perpetrator is a team activity. If they haven't listened in the one-on-one, now it becomes a team activity. And I was thinking, why Why does it now become a team activity? Well, I, I've noticed that sometimes, like, have you ever watched that show Intervention? Is it still on? It used to be on like A&E or something like that. Um, they like, you, like a family comes around this person who's living in, in addiction, whether it's like gambling or alcohol, drugs, 
and they have an intervention. They surprise the person. Everybody's there. And the idea is to like put the weight on that person. It's like if everybody shows up and is like worried about what you're doing, you're like, oh, maybe this is an important thing that I should be worried about. Right. So I think that's one of the reasons that uh, it's two to three witnesses. It makes the appeal stronger. The, the, another reason is that I think it great. It, it, um, it guarantees greater objectivity. Like if just I think you're sinning, I mean, I could be wrong. Right. But if I bring a few with me, now we get a, like a broader perspective. Again, this is so fair to the person that we're coming to. It's such friendship that's being offered here. No one's dismissed haphazardly. And it, it does have the feel of a trial, doesn't it? Kind of like a friendly trial, not one where the verdict's already been um, proclaimed, but one where it's innocent until proven guilty. <clears throat> the third thing uh, here about coming with two or three witnesses is that it guarantees the safety of the victim in the case of abuse. If we're honest, the church has a bit of a problem on its hands. Because we hold to the, the value of forgiveness, some have said that we've been overly forgiving and we haven't removed people that ought to have been removed, right? Imagine uh, there's a victim of abuse. And uh, let's just say a woman is being abused by her husband and it's unsafe environment for her. She said stop, but he continues. Well, now she does not have to, according to Jesus' teaching, she does not have to face her perpetrator again alone. She can address the issue with support in a safe environment. You get what I'm saying? This is actually pretty genius, isn't it? Like This is how the church should handle things. No victim of abuse is expected to carry out the confrontation on their own all the way through, especially in the cases of abuse. I thought that was actually pretty brilliant. So here we transition. Uh, verse 17. What if that still doesn't work? What then? If that still doesn't work, then what do we do? If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. This is the part where it gets congregational. Only when the perpetrator has not listened to the first person and not listened to the group of witnesses. Now it becomes a matter of church discipline. And again, this is where I asked you, like, I've never seen this actually happen in a corporate way. Maybe uh, some of you had. Um, but, you know, <clears throat> I, I've known folks who've seen both the beauty and the darkness of church discipline in this way. But I'm just imagining, like, did it actually happen this way? Because this seems kind of beautiful. This seems like there's a chance for actual uh, restoration. I thought to myself, like, we have to make sure that we're actually getting to Jesus in this process. If all we're getting is to condemnation, we know we're not getting to Jesus. Because when we get to Jesus, restoration is possible. Like true healing is possible. Repentance is possible in Jesus. But you have the case of someone who won't even repent, even before the church. And so what does this passage say? At this point now, now after we've gone through this fair process, this loving process, it's been private. It's been just a few friends and still there's no uh, confession or repentance. Then we've brought them before the entire congregation. Gosh, that would be awkward. That would be horrible. Imagine this person still does not repent. And what does Jesus say? Now you disassociate with them. And, and I think the bottom line is that obviously there's a point at which you stop giving people chances to repent. We should all hear that. There's a point at which we no longer get chances to repent. Jesus has his way. 
If his way has not bred repentance in your heart, there is an end of the road. Now, in the next passage, we're going to study Jesus' radical way of forgiveness. This is the 7 times 77 passage, if you've been in church before. It's a radical way uh, of forgiveness. But but we, we mustn't miss here in this passage his way of disassociation. So as, we, as we've learned from the Lord's Prayer, there's a, there's a forgiveness to be given, right? Uh, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. As Lord's Prayer. That's like Matthew chapter 6, I think. So that was a while ago. But this passage shows us that, that there's a point at which, even though you've granted forgiveness, there could still be a point where you disassociate. So I think this is really healthy for us. We need to learn that we can give forgiveness and we can disassociate ourselves with somebody. To forgive does not mean we allow somebody to continue unrepentantly in our circle. Does that make sense? Because when we allow unrepentant sin to go unpunished, when we allow communion with this body, even when someone's walking in unrepentant sin, that's there's danger to the body in that situation. It doesn't mean that we don't forgive, but it, there could be a point where we disassociate. Look, healthy churches preach the word. Healthy churches administer the sacraments. And healthy churches practice church discipline. And we need to be a church that's willing to do that. And hopefully it won't have to get to the corporate level, right? Hopefully it can be handled in the private level or maybe with two or three friends, but we've got to be a church that's willing to practice biblical self-discipline. You guys ever heard of John Wesley? John Wesley wrote a lot of the hymns that we, well, that some of us grew up singing, I guess, in church. He, um, he led England's 18th century revival. Maybe you're familiar with that event historically. This is what John Wesley said about church discipline. He said, wherever church discipline was enforced in this revival setting, the churches in England, wherever church discipline was enforced, numbers rose and spiritual vitality increased. Discipline is for the health of our church. Put this in parenting perspective. You know, uh, Megan and I, when we were parenting our kids very early on, we had somebody or a book or something tell us that the reason you discipline your kids is so that they'll be welcome uh, to be at other people's houses. If you, you discipline your kids uh, in order to give them the gift of friendship with others, you get what I'm saying? It's for their health that you discipline them. This is what John Wesley is saying right here. Wherever church discipline was enforced, numbers rose and spiritual vitality increased. We can tend to think the opposite, huh? Ah, if we're too strict, people won't want to be here. Like nothing, you know what I mean? Like we don't want to be overly like judgmental. We want to be like the gracious church. Maybe this is why I feel so convicted. I mean, I want all those things. John Wesley says that where church discipline was enforced, numbers rose and spiritual vitality increased. You know that story in Acts? Ananias and Sapphira, they, they lied about what they brought to the Lord. They were killed on the spot. You would think that that would have killed the church. Like if God struck somebody down in this body, like right now, God help us. You would think that would kill the church. Did it kill the church in Acts? No. <laughs> Thousands of years later, here we are. Church discipline is for the health of, of the church. Freddie B., one more time. This is Frederick Dale Bruner. When the church disciplines Christians, she will more effectively disciple non-Christians. A disciplining church will prove more loving in the long run than a church that advertises God's love 
but then shows no great interest in whether this love is practiced by our members. So what do we do when we have to come to the point of disassociation? I'm rounding the corner, headed for home here, guys, getting to my last page of notes. So what do we do? What do we do with these people who've rejected uh, repentance, rejected the confrontation, rejected restoration? It says in verse 17 at the very end, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, this is where the church has gotten its impetus for excommunication. Maybe you're familiar with that word. And again, I know that historically excommunication was used for things like uh, finding witches, you know, and and um, getting rid of people who thought maybe differently politically um, than was allowed at the time in the church. Uh, really petty things. Um, but Jesus says, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Disassociate yourselves with them. Now, I, I thought to myself, well, wait a minute. How did Jesus teach, uh, treat, I'm sorry, a pagan or a tax collector? There's some irony in this statement. Who wrote this gospel that we're studying? A tax collector. Levi, Matthew, he wrote the book that we're studying. He wrote this about himself. I love how he recognized his lostness. But what we know also is that Jesus, in his disassociation, like Jesus loved outsiders. Jesus was constantly bringing outsiders in, right? So it's like Jesus did, even then, Jesus' way is not to cut these people off. Yes, you treat them as somebody who's on the outside of the church, but you don't stop pursuing. Again, we see a picture of the God who leaves the 99, pursues the lost. It's really powerful to see how Jesus would treat a pagan and a tax collector. He loves these people. He never stops loving, even when disassociation is is necessary. But there is a line, and an unrepentant sinner is not a part of the church, according to Jesus' teaching. So this is all good and well. Hopefully, like I said, it's pretty clear. It's easy to understand, harder to do, right? But have you ever been around kids uh, um, when, um, when like one of the kids is trying to boss around the other kid, you know, and their instructions could be perfectly clear, but like resistance rises up, right? And often it, that what they'll say, what a kid will say is, says who, right? Indignantly, says who? And I think that's where Jesus goes here in, in verse 18, 19, and 20. Says who? Basically, by what authority do you have to tell someone that they're disassociated uh, from meeting? Jesus wants his church to know that God stands behind the preaching and disciplinary action of his word, right? What, uh, th- verse 18 is very similar to what he told Peter in, uh, in chapter 16. He said, truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So Jesus wants his church to know that God stands behind the preaching and disciplinary action of his word. Sinners can be freed from guilt before God if they're reconciled to the church. And this, this phrase, binding and loosing, or loosening, binding and loosening, it means like listening or not listening. The brother or sister that doesn't listen is bound. They're permitted from being part of the family. Unrepentance leads to banishment, which leads to bondage. We don't want people to stay there. This is why we confront sin. But the brother or the sister that listens, the one that's been won over, is loosened. They're allowed into the church family. See, their repentance grants them forgiveness, which grants them freedom. 
Do we want people in bondage or do we want people in freedom? Obviously, freedom is what we're aiming for, right? So Jesus says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. He's giving authority to his church. Church, if you do it his way, you can bind and you can loosen on earth as it is in heaven. God has our back when we preach the word and when we discipline believers who unrepentantly do what they want to do. And don't forget the good news in this. Don't forget the good news in the confrontation. Look, there's grace. There is grace for those who confess Jesus as the Christ. There's forgiveness of sins for those who repent. This is the beauty of the gospel. That he would take a wretch like me and make him free. But we must at once be a church who forgives repentant failures and also removes sin with a communal seriousness. This gets uh, Jesus really wound up. He goes off into a bit of a tangent, I think, here. It's related, though. And, of course, it's Jesus, so we have to forget him, forgive him for getting on his high horse. In verse 19, he, he says, again, I love this. That, that word is used for emphasis. But he already used the phrase for emphasis. He said, truly, I tell you, right? That means pay attention. This is really important. And then in the very next verse, he says, again, truly, I tell you. He's fired up. You know, this is like Jesus at the end of his halftime speech. Again, truly, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. I I found myself thinking, like, what is Jesus excited about? What gets Jesus excited? Here in this passage, Jesus gets excited about a church that's faithful to his way of practicing discipline. Jesus is excited about a church that loves people so much within its walls that it will not allow them to continue to walk in unrepentant sin without going to them first privately, then with just a few witnesses, and if needed, but only if needed, corporately in a very public way and in a worst-case scenario through disassociation. This is what gets Jesus excited. There's something really important for us in this. Look, the power and authority of heaven is granted to us when we're faithful to his teaching and when we're faithful to the discipline set forward for us in his word. Do you want your community to change? Do you want to see like revival around you in your streets? It's got to start here. And one of the ways that it starts here is by following Jesus way for discipline. We can't just like excuse sin in our midst. We're allowing people to infect one another. We're allowing stumbling blocks to persist. We're allowing people to walk down a road of destruction. That's not loving. It's not loving at all. And it's not going to accomplish what God's asked us to accomplish and given us the authority to accomplish by heaven. Verse 20, where two or three gather in my name. This is, I already think I already quoted this today, probably, uh, at least once. I love this, where two or three gather in my name, he is there. He's there. Where two or three are gathered in his name, he's there. The, the church is as small as where two or three are gathered. You don't need an enormous church to have the power and the authority of heaven. In Judaism, uh, 10 men were required for the practice of corporate worship. So this is like a statement that Jesus is making. First of all, he hasn't delineated by racial or uh, sexual gender bias, right? So it could be men or women. 
And then also he's, that's much less than 10. The Jews, as they're reading this, they might have been a bit alarmed because he's eliminated the gender bias and the size requirement. He says, where two or three are gathered in my name, it reminded me of that COVID season that we're in, you know, and churches are shutting down and, um, you know, they, there's all kinds of things that could go behind that. But um, well, we could talk for hours about if that was right or not. I get that. But here's what I do know. Wherever you gathered with two or three, more than just yourself, wherever you gathered, maybe your small little families, Jesus was there with you when you gathered in his name. This is powerful. Like you have the power and authority of Jesus when you come together with another believer in his name. It doesn't like we have as much power and authority right now as a church of whatever we are, as we will someday when we're a church of whatever we'll be. We don't have to wait to grow up to have the power and authority of heaven. It's real. It's living. All we have to do is do what he's asked us to do, to follow his teachings. And he says, there am I with them. Jesus, like one of the most miraculous things about Jesus is the way he gives us himself. Emmanuel, God with us. He says, there am I with them. It's really powerful. He doesn't just say, I will be there. He could have said it that way. But by saying, like, I'm there. He's essentially saying, like, I've been here the whole time. I'm prepared for you. I'm ready for you. I'm ready for your gathering. You don't have to invite me in. And I know sometimes we use that language. Maybe I need to stop because sometimes I use that language. I will be there. It's as if he comes, uh, or I'm sorry, there I am. It's as if he's already there. He's been there. Man, maybe he's the one just waiting for us to get together. So cool. In my name, the smallest group of Christians enjoys the largest promises of God. There I am with them. When we gather to come to Jesus, he's here. <clears throat> Especially when we ask things of him. And that's cool too, right? It's like Jesus loves the small prayer meeting. It gives me great encouragement as your pastor. Uh, I read this quote this week. This is a bit of a joke, but um, this person said that Jesus made this promise to two or three because he knew that two or three are about how many you can expect to come to a prayer meeting. We're doing way better than that around here. Way better than that. Two or three is all we need to have the full power and authority of heaven. So in response this morning, um, Jake and Michael, you guys can come up and, and um, strike up the chorus. But I wanted to just pray for two things this morning. Number one, the courage to confront sin. Because I think sometimes we are living in fear. We're scared. And I think um, th the second thing I wanted to pray for was just conviction. Um, that we would be convicted of our own sin so that we could be the person that when confronted would repent right away in public and, and experience restoration. So uh, let me pray for us.